On this, uh, on this program, we like to think of ourselves as the second best uh, program in America dedicated to planetary exploration, <laughs> but uh, for, fortunately, there's one better out there, and we're going to have uh, Matt Kaplan return now, uh, who is the host of Planetary Radio, the best radio program in America about planetary exploration, to talk about this Mars landing. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you, Doug. Uh, you, you are too kind. <laughs> this was uh, exciting. I got to tell people, I went down to Pasadena and, uh, on Sunday. And they were waiting for this, what they described as seven minutes of terror, and that, that's, that's kind of what it was. Yeah, it's exactly what it was, and, and it was great to see you. Uh, nice to meet you in person, finally. Everyone in that room felt it. I mean, the tension was absolutely palpable, maybe edible, uh, as we watched the people at JPL, who uh, I'm sure were even more anxious than us. Uh, but uh, what, what an enormous, uh, joyous relief when that thing touched down. And, and I got to say, there was the, the funniest line of the day came when I, I can't remember who who said this, but they came in and were describing uh, the scene over at uh, a JPL, when all the people all wearing blue shirts were standing by their monitors, and they said, "Well, these guys are are described as the controllers, but they're watching what's going on like the rest of us." <laughs> That's right. That's right. There was nothing we could do. I mean, after all, everything had happened. Minutes before, yes, uh, it was seen on Earth just because of the time it took uh, to get here from Mars. I mean, and that's why this thing had to be entirely on its own. There's no way. I mean, if it was going to take ten, fifteen minutes for the signal to get to Earth, hey, I'm in trouble. Tell me what to do. <laughs> it was going to be on the ground in pieces before exactly. anybody could respond. Which is kind of just amazing to contemplate that something is, you know, fifteen light minutes away, you know, and you're you're just waiting for the for the for the, the light beam, in essence, the electromagnetic uh, waves, the radio waves, to finally get to Earth. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yes, it is. But uh, among the many mind-boggling things, the fact that during a seven-minute period, uh, this spacecraft had to go from twelve thousand five hundred <laughs> miles an hour down to landing at five miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it was about a quarter of a mile an hour horizontal. Yeah. <laughs> so it it did it was flawless. It did absolutely everything that it was supposed to, and you know we should say Peter Smith, uh, the principal investigator, had enormous confidence that this was going to go okay. He was still nervous, but you know he was telling me the week before and telling other people we're going to be fine. This is going to be a success. Well, a lot of the other people on his team, I don't think, had that level of confidence. <laughs> they weren't willing to go out on a limb like that, but, you know, he was right. Well, he, he, yes, he was, and, and and the process was kind of an amazing one. They, they first of all, just sort of hit the atmosphere like a bullet and uh, and, and slowed, uh, slowed to 900 miles an hour. Then they had the parachute come out. And they had the radar lock on the ground. Then they put it. Then they fired the retro rockets. And then finally, as the last moment, they had shock absorbers. So it's just like right. a four-step yeah. process. Just this idea of this thing coming down under the parachute and then letting go and free falling yes. for a moment, and maybe even flipping over. Yes. Uh, before those uh, pulse uh, uh, thrusters came on and did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, they described it wasn't like just firing a rocket. They were firing like a machine gun in essence. Like that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they made the point that uh, that uh, Viking, which of course is the the other soft successful soft lander, the the two of them, they had throttleable throttleable. Do you try and say that rocket? <laughs> uh, and whereas this one, you couldn't throttle them, so they had to pulse. And I I imagine it was like a machine gun. 
And another thing that I thought was fascinating they talked about in the press conference beforehand was that uh, they timed this one so that uh, there's three space, three functioning spacecraft orbiting Mars now, and they all were coming over the pole in the same vicinity so that they could pick up the signals of the craft coming down and relay them to Earth, which is quite a bit of choreography. Yeah, they had that. I, I think it was Odyssey and MRO. And then they also got uh, permission from the European Space Agency, uh, acknowledged during the press conference right after the landing, uh, that uh, their Mars Express would also listen and... They were picking up the signal here on Earth, which uh, was a different signal, not quite the data rate, but it all worked flawlessly. And, of course, that was what led to this incredible picture that you and I were just talking about. Uh, There was the spacecraft coming down under its parachute in a picture taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. We need to refer, I think, people at this point to to the website, the Planetary Society website, to actually see some of these photographs. uh, Emily uh, Lakdawalla is a blogger and a good one, a very good one. Uh, you've had her on the show many times. You bet. She's got this wonderful photograph of of this uh, of the craft taken after they popped the parachute as it's drifting over this crater. It's just it's just it's spectacular. She describes it as jaw dropping. I think that's absolutely true. She also said, you know, think of what this took, uh, what it took to do this. You had, in her words, a speeding bullet taking a picture of a speeding bullet. And and the, and the thing is, Matt, that's such an underestimation of how fast these things are going. <laughs> that's the, right. A speeding bullet is going like, you know, uh, is like 2,000 feet per second. I just did the math. This thing hit the atmosphere going 18,000 feet per second. So it's going <laughs> nine times faster than a speeding bullet. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive. Indeed. These initial photos came back. We were hoping we'd get them that night, and 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 JPL was able to oblige. And I think they made they made reference in a press conference to some guy from an Irish news agency saying if they didn't come up with some pictures, there was going to be trouble. Yeah, you know, I actually saw a replay of that press conference, and that guy said, "We're TV people. We're shallow. We need photos. We need images." Well, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm glad I'm in radio, I guess. And we now have some curious photos of the polar region. It doesn't look like places we've seen before. No, and and this is Peter was also Peter Smith was very happy about this too because he you know he said he said many times it's not a horizontal mission there are no wheels on uh, Phoenix this is a vertical mission we're going to dig down and he said what we see of these planes it's so uniform and yet amazing when you look out across these endless polygons these endless diamond shapes on the surface that are more indication of ice under just underneath he said it doesn't really matter where we came down as long as we came down in that on those planes and so now apparently they're unpacking the arm and they're going to start digging well and peter smith has promised all of us that we're going to find ice and every and everybody thinks he's right <laughs> that's right yeah i think it's a pretty safe bet since they have good evidence from the orbiters that have peered a little bit under the surface. Of course, there's nothing like actually digging into it and uh, dumping it in those little ovens and seeing what they can cook out of it. I mean, won't that be something if they come up with some complex organic molecules? Yeah, Matt, before we go, we should mention the fact that, well, we're there too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You got your name on there? I, I, I'm still an active member of the Planetary Society, so I'm on Mars. Yeah, you sure are. <laughs> All the members and a lot of other people who wrote in on the website, I'm looking at the little picture, the first one taken. There's the American flag on the right, and just to the left is this little DVD that on it says, Astronauts, take this with you. <laughs> All of our names and a library, the first library on Mars. All kinds of science fiction stories and, and images of uh, the Red Planet.
I got quite a laugh over that. Astronauts take this with you. Like, <laughs> like, like, like they're going to go all the way over and neglect to take the DVD. Frankly, I think they should take it, copy it, and then put it back and put a chain around this because this will be, you know, another little historic site for the Mars Historical Society in 50 or 100 years. And, of course, we, we can't close today without mentioning the fact that the sci-fi, of course, inspiring people over the years has, has led in no small degree to going to Mars and that, uh, that Ray Bradbury did, uh, did also participate in this event. He sure did, yeah. He wasn't able to join us in person. His health was just, just wasn't up to it, but he did call in. And, you know, it's this great circle. Uh, the science fiction writers inspire the future scientists and engineers, and then they go out and learn stuff, and the science fiction writers base stories on what they learn. It, it's, uh, hopefully it's going to go on for a long, long time. It's great to see uh, Bruce Betts. Uh, we had on a couple of weeks back to his usual great job as an MC. It was just a good time was had by all. Yeah, yeah, over 750 people, and it was a heck of an evening. Well, Matt, it's good to talk to you again, and we will uh, we will go over this again in June because there's going to be exciting stuff. Hey, Doug, what a pleasure! Thank you so much for this and uh, and for your ongoing interest. You're you're more than welcome, Matt. We'll talk again. Take care. That was Matt Kaplan, the host of the Planetary Society's radio program, Planetary Report, which comes out of KUCI down in Irvine, and is heard locally on KDVS nine o'clock Wednesday mornings. All right. I do want to note that on the way down to Planet Fest on Sunday, I snagged a copy of The Atlantic, the one that's currently on newsstands, the June issue, and also a Scientific American. Both featured articles. The Atlantic was actually a cover story about uh, the Earth being the target of space junk. Let's start with the Scientific American article by Luca Gasparini, Enrico Bonatti, and Giuseppe Longo, three Italian scientists the travel to Siberia in effort to, to resolve the mystery of what happened in Tunguska 100 years ago next month. On June 30th, 1908, something came out of space and had one powerful, uh, you know, many megaton explosion in the skies above uh, the frozen tundra. And uh, yet scientists have always been puzzled by the fact that what appears to have been a comet or an asteroid hitting the Earth did not leave a significant crater. It blew up in the atmosphere. The article didn't have a lot of, uh, of a real science to it, but it did note that a small lake, Lake Checo, which you can actually check out on Google Earth, apparently, was uh, near the epicenter of the blast. Trees were felled in a radial pattern, uh, you know, depending on you know, how far away they were from, from this object, but the ones that were right below where it blew up in space remain standing as sort of charred telephone poles. The article hints at the fact that uh, this lake may contain a sizable chunk of whatever it is that blew up. It has an unusual contour according to the sonar uh, imaging they took uh, on it. And, of course, we're going to now have to wait for them to go back and go to the bottom of the lake and see if they can find uh, what's embedded there. The, the bad news about the article is that the study of the physics of how it came in indicates that it may not have been as big an explosion as we presumed. In the, in the past, it was estimated that it was somewhere between 10 and 20 megatons. Uh, the new estimations are that it may have only been 3 to 5 megatons, but yet the, the momentum of the explosion carried it down to the ground. Uh, the bad news about that is that this requires a much smaller object than we thought, which, which allows us to segue into the Atlantic article by Greg Easterbrook, uh, which notes um, that we are a lot less secure than we thought we were. 
The article notes that in 1980, only 86 near-Earth asteroids and comets were known to exist. By 1990, the figure had risen to 170. By 2000, it was 921. As of today, it appears to be 5,388. Ten years ago, we knew of 244 space rocks one kilometer across or more, the size that would cause global calamity, and now the total is up to 741 and counting. The article also mentions the fact that uh, studies of the Earth trying to estimate, estimate how long, how often we're hit by these things have been based on crater counts. But since, as we just mentioned, this event in Tunguska, which was a plenty big explosion, did not leave a crater. Uh, so it was noted that they had people actually not seen the flash, heard the detonation, and traveled to the remote area to photograph the scorched wasteland. A century or two later, we would never know this event had happened. If this object had struck the Earth a few hours later, it would have pulverized St. Petersburg. Uh, Greg Easterbrook is uh, quite critical of NASA's uh, lack of enthusiasm about tracking these near-Earth objects and doing something about it. He noted, In January, I attended an internal NASA conference held at agency headquarters, during which NASA's core goals were presented in a PowerPoint slideshow. Nothing! was said about protecting Earth from space strikes, not even researching what sorts of spacecraft might be used in an approaching rock emergency. After the presentation, NASA's administrator Michael Griffin came in the room and I asked him why there had been no discussion of space rocks. He said, we don't make up our goals. Congress has not instructed us to provide Earth defense. I administer the policy set by Congress and the White House, and that policy calls for a focus on a return to the moon. Congress and the White House do not ask me what I think. I asked what NASA's priorities would be if he did set goals. Quote, the same. Our priorities are correct now, he answered. We are on the right path. We need to go back to the moon. We don't need a near-Earth object program. Noted Easterbrook, actually, Congress has asked NASA to pay more attention to space rocks. In 2005, Congress instructed the agency to mount a sophisticated search of the proximate heavens for asteroids and comets, specifically requesting that NASA locate all near-Earth objects 104 meters or larger that are less than 1.3 astronomical units from the Sun, roughly out to the orbit of Mars. So while NASA is intent upon going back to the Moon, Truthfully, NASA should be going to Mars. The moon is not going to help us get to Mars any quicker. A point, uh, a point made in the article, which noted that NASA's lack of interest in defending against space objects leaves a void that the Air Force seems eager to fill. The Air Force has the world's second largest space program with a budget of about $11 billion, which is $16 billion less than NASA, and uh, notes that with NASA all but ignoring the space object threat, the Air Force appears to be seizing an opportunity couple things uh, I would note. Uh, this correspondent um, is pleased to imagine that all the money we've been wasting on this idiot Star Wars defense program might have some application in this particular area, meaning that the, uh, the billions of dollars we've thrown at that uh, may not completely be a waste. The article points out that a threat from space rocks um, isn't really that of a hostile nation, but if the Air Force's job is to defend us from attack, uh, isn't that a legitimate use? Of, uh, of Air Force resources? Well, we, we, we think it is. But the truly, the truly sad part about this is we're talking about $17 billion for NASA's entire budget. 
$11 billion for the Air Force's uh, space program. That's $28 billion total, which is what we're spending in Iraq every nine weeks, month in and month out. Anyway, I didn't want to talk to Matt, uh, Matt about this particular issue because it's very political. The Planetary Society is interested in going out and, uh, and, and putting a tracker on this asteroid Apophis, which is going to make a close pass in the year 2029. We'll learn quite a bit uh, if we do that. But uh, you know, the Planetary Society can't get involved in, in you know, political advocacy, which is where we're trying to step in. We think uh, Greg Easterbrook has it right, and we uh, would, would send you off to get a copy of The Atlantic, and then send us your comments to info at radioparallax.com. Anyway, we, we will no doubt return to this topic uh, at some future date. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for our third segment. Thank you.